Please turn in your Bibles to, I hate to say for the last time, at least in this capacity, to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50. As you're turning there, I'll remind you once again, we started a new quarter of Sunday school classes here at Redeemer, so it's not too late for you to make plans for next week to join in with those classes. All ages have new classes. The adults are in the lower level. And there is a Meet the Pastor class for those who are just here to inquire about the church that I would like to personally invite you to come to. I teach that class. It's just an overview of what Redeemer is about. And that is room 42 at 10 o'clock next week. That's the time of our Sunday school classes. And you can see all the other classes there as well. This morning, we end the exposition of the book of Genesis. There is one more sermon remaining in the series, but it's on one of the the prevailing themes of the book. It'll be like a capstone sermon on that theme of God's providence. But today, we end our trek through the verses, the chapters of Genesis together in this one unit that we have been studying. It's been since August of 2021 that we began this exposition. 69 sermons later, we draw to this conclusion. We've read every chapter in Genesis together, and it's been a blessing. Genesis 50 records the burial of Jacob and the burial of Joseph. Those are the two bookends. And in between, um, the finalities and the preparations of the lives of their ancestors, of Joseph's ancestors, uh, that will wait 430 years before their answer. So here now as I read Genesis chapter 50, uh, this is the final chapter of the first book of God's Word. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought 
with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when, he, when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We cannot live by bread alone, but instead depend on every word that comes from your mouth. Every word that you have spoken to us in Scripture is true and proves to be a shield for us when we take refuge in you. Heaven and earth will pass away but your word will remain. Now, O Lord, sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. I pray this through Christ. Amen. So at last, we have arrived together at the end of Genesis. It's as if we've been on a long journey together, and now we've finally reached our conclusion. It's a journey that I kind of wish would never come to an end. It began with God creating the heavens and the earth, and as Derek Kidner characterized, it ends in a coffin in Egypt. The curtain closes on Genesis, and it closes with the burials, the bookend burials of Jacob and Joseph at the beginning and the end of the chapter. And then in between, you have the beginning of the wait of Israel for God to visit them a wait that would take 430 years for the first time that God would visit in this capacity. In fact, sandwiched between the two burials are some of the themes that we have seen throughout the book of Genesis, themes that typify who the person of God is. 
And we see it in full personal display here right before us. I want you first to look at the opening half of the chapter as you see Joseph fulfilling his promise, his very important promise to his father with regard to his burial. But it goes far beyond that when Pharaoh gets involved and celebrates the person of Jacob, yes, but it's really the God of Jacob. That's the focus of this funeral processional you see in the opening verses. This is about the promise keeper God calling Jacob, who called Isaac, and then who also called Abraham before him, and now is promising something to those who will come after. You see, the promises of God can be trusted now because we have seen how he has fulfilled all of them, all of them in the past. So on display in Joseph's obedience to his father's wishes is a promise-keeping. He keeps promise, and he does so as a way of reflecting the character of God himself, who is the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping, promise-making, covenant-making God. Look at the opening verse as you see the despair in Joseph as he loses his beloved father. They had a very close relationship, and of course, Joseph lost all those years because of what had happened with the brothers and his being sold to Egypt. And so Joseph falls on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Then he commands his servants, the physicians, to embalm him. This is in preparation to go back to the family gravesite in Hebron, back in the promised land. Now, it's a subtlety of the text, but I don't want you to miss what he doesn't say. He doesn't say to the priests of On to mummify their father under the usual Egyptian religious rituals. Moses is careful to differentiate here the process Joseph is calling for. He's having the physicians to do the work to prepare the body so it's preserved because it will take time for mourning and time for travel that it would be preserved before it gets back to the cemetery. That's the point of what's being described here. The physicians will use their skills to drain the fluids of the body, fill the the body with a salty mixture and material in order for the body to be preserved. Not a mummification with religious significance for Egypt. Joseph went to bury his, up to bury his father. That language also appears several times in the first 14 verses. They go up from Egypt. Now, sure, it's north, but this is language Moses likes to employ when speaking about Israel leaving Egypt in the Exodus to go to Canaan. The same language. So verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt. This is a huge entourage of people accompanying the body of Jacob. All the household of Joseph. Only the little ones and the animals didn't go. Everyone else went. In fact, it says in verse 9 that there was a a military escort that went with Jacob. This is how important uh, this burial was. Sure, important to safeguard Pharaoh's cherished viceroy, but also to acknowledge the God of Jacob, who Pharaoh recognized as being behind all of what brought them salvation during the time of famine. So a full military escort, chariots and horsemen go. A very great company in verse 9. All of this celebrating the promise-keeping God by Joseph keeping his promise to make sure 
his father's body is brought back to the family tomb. It's interesting to note the route they take because it's not a conventional route, and this is why Moses notes it. Look at verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, uh, the Transjordan, this is an area they didn't have to go to to get straight up to Canaan, but they take this route. And the reason for this route is what we have here is a forecasting of what will come to pass 400 years later. The same route that Moses will lead the children of Israel, no longer to 70 at that point 400 years later, but almost 2 million people later, this will be the route that they take up out of Egypt to go to the promised land, to Canaan. There's a bit of a foreshadowing happening here in the text before us. But an immediate purpose is to make sure that the promise is kept to put the body of Jacob in the tomb in Hebron. Kidner, who I like to quote often, says, the patriarchal sepulcher, or grave, is prominent in the story as the one remaining stake in the promised land. This is the land that God promises to Israel, where he will make them a great nation for the purpose of bringing from the tribe of Judah the Messiah. One of the reasons why I did no trouble continuing through Genesis for Advent is because these chapters speak of the waiting for God to visit. In the visitation they're looking for in the time of Joseph, 1800 BC, is when in some 1400 BC, Moses would be raised up and God would visit his people there. That's what they're looking forward to. That's what they're waiting for. But this would be a deposit in the land of Canaan. In fact, this promised land has only one small parcel that is owned by Abraham and his seed, where the grave is. Only there. And so by going there and depositing Jacob there, going back as a tribe to Egypt to wait in Goshen, that's a deposit believing in the promise of God to come. In fact, this whole funeral is really about depending on the promises of God. That's what any real funeral should be. It's not a celebration of Jacob's life. It's a celebration of the faithfulness of God to honor his promises. And by having him buried there, it's a statement that when the resurrection occurs, I want to be in that land that God promised. It's a statement from the dead to the living about the promises made by God, that we can be assured of them. So all of this is important, what Joseph does in honoring his father's desires, because these desires are based on faith that God will glorify himself by raising on the last day all of his people, and they will enter the new heavens and the new earth, the ultimate heavenly Canaan, all forecasting this and what occurs. It matters what's happening. You know, on a base level, honoring our commitments is fundamental to who we are as believers, as people transformed by God. God is the completely faithful one, and we reflect him, maybe not most, but in one of the greatest ways, when our yes is yes and our no is no, and we honor our commitments. And you see Joseph living that out as he makes sure that his father is buried as he said. We should spend much time contemplating the fulfilled promises of God. That happens at funerals for sure, but it should be one of the things that colors all of our thinking. Our worries about the future are much, are much remedied as we think of how faithful he has been in the past. 
It's the Bible's history of promises kept that gives us such confidence about what we sing concerning during Advent as having happened, but also what we know will come to pass when he comes again. Now, there's something else I want you to see on display. Just like every passage in this certain section of Genesis with the life of Joseph and his brothers, you have these big events like this funeral. Then it comes down to the personal relationships and interactions that draw our attention so poignantly. You have, for, you have on full display an exhibition of true forgiveness. True forgiveness. Look at verse 15. It starts pretty tragically, pretty pathetically, really. You know, when you have such a treacherous past like these brothers, even when it seems like it's been rectified on the surface, it tends to keep coming back and you start to wonder, is it really done? Is it really over? Are my sins really forgiven? That stuff we did to Joseph, I know that it was all made right and it seemed to be that everybody was on the same page. We've been living in 17 years of harmony now. But now our father's gone. Maybe this was an act. Maybe Joseph was just waiting. They're worried. This is what happens when you have this past. It can come back to haunt us. Look at verse 15. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They assessed, okay, new situation now. No more Jacob. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, Joseph forgave them, but they weren't living in that forgiveness. They were living under this guilt, in this belief that the other shoe's going to drop at some point. We're going to get what's coming to us. It doesn't say they shouldn't get it. They don't say they would be wrong. Now, it would be from Joseph's perspective because he's granted them this forgiveness, but they're living as if they don't have. By the way, is that not so true for many? Maybe you, where you've received the clear forgiveness of God and Christ but you keep thinking in the back of your mind, but he's going to get me because I did this wrong or I did that wrong. It's a terrible way to live. And here's a display of full forgiveness shown and expressed. But they're worried, so they send a message to Joseph. They say in verse 16, your father gave this command before he died. Now, scholars argue about, are they making this up? I mean, wouldn't be beyond them, right? Maybe it was a situation. We just don't know for sure. Maybe it was a situation where they were sitting around and Jacob's getting sick and they said to each other in Joseph's or in Jacob's hearing, hey, dad, like, what is this going to look like when you're not here? It would be really great if you would remind Joseph that everything's good and that you want him to forgive us. Maybe it was like that. And Jacob says, yes, of course. We don't know for sure. I tend, I want to at this point in their life in sanctification to imagine it was something more like that than rather completely fabricated. So they send this message to Joseph. Verse 17, say to Joseph in this message, or that, that the idea that Jacob said this, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 17 years and they still have to say this kind of a thing. They have to say, that Jacob really wanted you to forgive us. It's a sad thing. In fact, look at verse 17, the response that Joseph has. It's heartfelt. We can can almost uh, feel what he's saying here. When Joseph sees his brothers are scared like this, Joseph wept, verse 17, when they spoke to him. Now, why do you think he cried? It could be many things. Probably it's so sad that my brothers still have not 
learn to live in the freedom that we have all understood that God has gifted us. Look at our lives now. Yes, we've been through all sorts of things, but look where we are now. Maybe that's why I cried. Maybe he cried thinking again that his father's not here. Kind of the glue of the family to hold this, and this is, it just reminded him again. Maybe it's just remembering what they did do to him. How, that was tough. That was, and they're, they're still living in it. It was such a bad thing. Whatever the case, the brothers aren't wasting any time. Verse 18, they come and they fall down at his feet before him. Just like the vision he had so many years ago, again realized. We are your servants, he says. And now Joseph displays what might be the most mature view of Old Testament faith that we find. He bookends his little speech to the, to the brothers with, do not fear. And then he says it again at the end, do not fear. And that is what God says to you with your sins when you bring them to Christ. Christ takes them, he has paid for them, they are taken away, and now you do not have to fear any longer. And this is the mature faith of Joseph now to start out by saying, I can see you're scared, I can see you feel guilty. You are guilty, you did these things. And you think you're going to have to pay for it, I'm saying, do not fear. Now, that would just be sentimental if big brother said that or younger brother said that in this place of power. Maybe he might feel a little different in a few days. But the mature faith and expression of Joseph is not based on just sentiment here, though he just got done crying. He says next in verse 19, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now, do you recognize with that perspective from Joseph, they're secure in their being forgiven. He's not basing their forgiveness on how he feels towards them. He's basing his forgiveness on who God is and what God has done and what God has said. That's a mature faith that allows him to forgive his brothers who really deserved it to get it, no question. Am I in the place of God? What a humble position for Joseph to take with his brothers. But it's the right position. And it helps them to be forgiving. See, people who understand their own forgiveness or God's grace to them don't have trouble extending forgiveness to others. Anybody can get mad at somebody for just cause, but not everybody can forgive somebody when they've justly been harmed, except for the person who's received that kind of grace themselves. And that's what's on display with Joseph towards his brothers who are still racked with their guilt for understandable reasons. Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? What a humble statement. Think about the beginning of the book of Genesis. Do you remember a similar statement like this? It was the opposite, though. It was to Adam and Eve when the devil said, when you eat of it, you will be like God. And they're like, I want to be like God. Joseph saying, in opposition to that kind of pride, am I in the position? No, I'm not in the position of God. I can't come down on you when I know the fullness of what God has displayed for us here. You know, there's something else that, that wraps up this mature forgiveness, this mature faith that works in forgiveness. He first recognizes he is not God, and God is the one who rights wrongs, not him. But he also recognizes that God uses even the malice of his brothers to accomplish his purposes. And if Joseph were to rewrite it, he couldn't do a better job to get to God's appointed ends. That's a humility to recognize. Am I God? He's the one, and he does what he wants. And furthermore, this is the capstone on the forgiveness. 
Furthermore, he is going to not only say, do not fear, I'm going to provide for your families now. Stop worrying. I'm going to pour out on you grace. Leaving all the writings of the wrongs to God, seeing God's providence even in the malice of people, but then to repay them, not with evil, but with affection. That's exactly what Paul writes of in 1 Thessalonians. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Listen, it's true. Sinful patterns in our lives, even when we're forgiven, we come to Christ. They come back in our minds at times, and we wonder how this will come around. And it's not to say there won't be some results that still happen from things we've done in the past. But you can know that the forgiveness that you need most is with God, and he grants that to you in Christ. And he'll give you the grace uh, to make confession, to make restitution where you have. Not confession or restitution to be forgiven. It's because you're forgiven. That's what we experience in our lives. And the brothers will experience this now as Joseph, in humility before God, grants them this forgiveness and this affection, this provision that he's going to give for them. You know, people will do you wrong all the time, and your first inclination will be, like mine is, justice. Why are they doing this? But then I have to pause for a moment and say, I've done plenty of sins in my own life. You know, what is the purpose behind this for all of us to recognize, and we go slower and more, uh, more gently with our approach towards others when they harm us. It doesn't mean you brush something under the rug. doesn't mean anything like that. But the approach comes from, I'm not God. I'm not the one that's ultimately offended here. It's God who is, and he's the one who works out what will flow from this. And how I then act at this moment can go a long way to displaying the grace of God. You see this unfold in Joseph's interactions, the way that he practices really true forgiveness. Then in verse 20, we have what I would describe as a statement for the ages about God's providence. We have seen the doctrine of providence throughout Genesis. The last sermon in the series, not in the exposition, will be next week, and I'm going to do a sermon on that in Joseph's life because it's so pointed. But this doctrine of providence that we have learned where God, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass and then he works things to the appointed end. When Joseph thinks again of what has been done to him by his brothers, he speaks words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that every one of us has to hear because this will help us navigate life in the many mysteries of life, the many unanswered questions, this doctrine, the truth here that the Bible teaches, that Joseph speaks, will help us more practically than almost any other doctrine you'll ever confront. And it won't be you're going to understand everything. That's not the answer to it. Listen to what Joseph says. He's had lots of time to think about all this. He says to his brothers, who are racked with fear and guilt, something that comes from who he is now as a mature believer, He said, brothers, as for you, yes, you did evil against me. You meant every bit of it, and you're responsible for it. You're guilty for it. There's no question. But God meant your actions for good, for the saving of many lives, including your own. That's what he says in verse 20. So he's saying that Joseph 
knew his place and their place in God's plan now that he was able to see it. So now the brothers are, have got to be feeling more confident that he's not just out of sentiment saying, you're forgiven. He's saying that what we did, even what we did, and we're paying the price for it, humanly speaking, we're responsible, is part of God's plan to work out his eternal good. You know it says in Romans that he works all things for good for those who love him and are called to his purpose. It doesn't say he works all good things. All things for his good. He was humble before God, and he states something that sheds an all-time important light on the workings of God. You meant for evil what God was meaning for good. The same action, evil when you did it, but God uses it for his purposes. Robert Rayburn says, well, the divine sovereignty that takes up human decisions and deeds into its plan, even sinful human decisions and deeds, is here confessed as it is often confessed this way in the Bible, how God exercises that sovereign rule, how the holy God remains himself unsullied by his use of human sin, how he uses sin sinlessly is never fully explained in the Bible. But it's there. It's on that basis that he says to his brothers, do not fear. Few doctrines will provide you more practical comfort than providence. God's use of the sinful actions of human beings to accomplish his purpose, it's mysterious. But it's clearly displayed as the case. And we ought to humbly rest there because there are lots of questions you won't answer. And it's not the right answer to say, well, I'm mad at God because I don't like that I don't have the answer. Someday, some way, not probably in these days, we'll have insight about the fullness of what God is unfolding. But certainly what we have here was helpful in the most practical sense to the brothers as they thought. Is he just saying he forgives us because it's a sentimental moment? No, he forgives because he knows who God is in all of this. There are bookends in this chapter that are funerals. And now we come to the last one that displays another you might say, a bit of a bookend in the Scriptures, a thematic bookend. And that is the concept of the people of God waiting for God to visit. When we speak of or when the Old Testament authors talk about God visiting, there is his normal providence where he works through all these events in ordinary means. But when he visits, it usually is referring to God in some supernatural way, interrupting, you might say, in either blessing his people to accomplish something, give power to his people to do something that he's calling them to do that they couldn't do otherwise, or it could be he's visiting with his presence, his purifying presence, for judgment's sake. It could even be for his people at those moments, in discipline. That's what it means that God will visit in the most generic sense. As Joseph is ready to die, he says to his brothers, verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Now, you is collective for his family, for their families. Since he's going to die before them as they're alive, he says you because they're alive in their families. Now, when they might die, they would use some of the same terminology to pass that covenant promise on. 
you will eventually see the promised land. You're about to die. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. So now I say to my grandkids, you will, and you will, and you will. And they would keep doing this for 400 years they did this before God visited the person of Moses. People outside the land now waiting for God to visit them again so they could go back into the land. It wasn't like, okay, we've had enough time, we built up enough equity, we've got enough power, we've got enough money, let's go back. They wouldn't be able to do this. God would have to visit them to prepare them to go back to the promised land that they had waited for. This theme of God visiting is not new with this episode. Here, they're waiting for God to visit in the time of Moses. But then after the time of Moses, there's a continued um, looking forward to of God visiting again. But what will that visit be? Well, when will God be with us? That's the promise. That's the next time he'll visit. And that's when he visits, when he comes through the Virgin Mary. And that's when he visits again. And Christ comes and he brings his blessing. And he also brings his curses upon those who reject him. And then as Jesus is in his earthly ministry, he's forecasting when God will visit in an ultimate way. And the New Testament authors capture all of this to build towards that end, to when you have John the Revelator in chapter 22 of Revelation, quoting Jesus himself, he who testifies to these things in Revelation, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Surely, why so sure? Because every other promise has been kept. When he says he will visit, he will visit. And we can be sure he will visit again in this way. God's people should always be in the stature of anticipation about God's visitation. Advent, it's about God's visiting the first time, at least the time in the person of Christ. It wasn't the first time he visited throughout biblical history, but the key culminating moment building to that point. And now we look forward to what he said he would do, and that is he would visit again, that he would come again. But this time, not in a serving capacity, but in terms of blessing and curses for those who are in him and for those who who will be judged who are outside of him. The book of Genesis began in the perfect Garden of Eden, and here we are with the coffin of of Joseph being the final scene. It ends with the people in Goshen in in a kind of exile awaiting the visitation of their God to go to the promised land. So, brothers and sisters, we've arrived here at last, the end of the book of Genesis. It's like we've been on a long journey together and have now reached the conclusion. At the same time, it's a journey that should leave us forever changed in our depth of understanding now. In Genesis, we have learned nothing less than the meaning of life and the answer to life's biggest problem. We have learned of God's sovereign creation, the reason the world lays in desperate desolation. We've learned of God's commitment to provide a way of salvation. We've learned of God giving of himself as the second Adam to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. And the story of Israel is the story of the raising up of that second Adam. He raises a man and then a family and a cohort of people, a tribe, ultimately a great nation so that Messiah would come. We've seen the work of God in providence in such a way as to prepare all of this to come to the moment of salvation that he was orchestrating. We close this chapter awestruck with God's powerful, sovereign hand of sure salvation. So I want to complete the exposition of Genesis in maybe an unusual way 
by reading the first verses of the next chapter to conclude. These next verses come 430 years after Joseph is put in his coffin. Exodus chapter 1, just the first few verses. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king over Egypt. And that king did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, they're too many people here. They're too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And then if a war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and they're going to fight against us and escape the land. So in this light, put taskmasters over them, afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more that they were multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, Moses, he was keeping the flock of his father his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. God was visiting. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great light, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God was visiting him. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. He's visiting them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go up to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. He's going to visit. I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain.
Let's close as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we have been enriched by this exposure to your word. The book of Genesis contains the seeds for everything the rest of the Bible reveals. We have seen the creation of all things. We have witnessed the tragic entrance of sin and death. We've heard your first proclamation of the good news of Christ, the form of the the seed from the woman who would come to crush the serpent's head. We have seen you populate the earth while safeguarding your promised seed. We have seen you begin to form a nation from a most unlikely family led by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of all people. You raised up a prefigurement of Christ in the person of Joseph who would rescue his people just as Jesus would rescue us from eternal death. O Lord, may this foundation that has been built by your word continue to inform us as we as we read our Bibles going forward. And during this Advent season especially, may we be ever anticipatory when we sing and when we read your word. Anticipatory that because all your promises have come true in Christ, we know all the ones that remain to be fulfilled will come true in Christ as well, who visited us 2,000 years ago to crush Satan's head and will visit, visit us again, but this time in glory and in consummation. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's just turn now to our hymnals in response, and we will turn to 196. 196 is...